This is Walter Edgar's Journal. Today's program is a rebroadcast of a 2009 interview with geologist and author Abby Salinger and is part of our continuing series celebrating Walter Edgar's Journal at 21. With me on the telephone today from Florida is Abby Salinger, who heads the U.S. Geological Survey Center's uh, Storm Impact Research Group. That's a pretty long title, but he deals with not only nature's impact on the land, but also how human settlement has affected what nature can do to us. So first of all, Abby, welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Thank you, Walter. And uh, our listeners always like to know a little bit about uh, the folks I'm talking to. So um, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are? Okay. I, uh I went to the University of Virginia, and I, uh, after uh, growing up in a military family, my father was a Navy pilot, and my sister and I, uh, uh, of course, went went with him uh, all all over the country. So we've lived from Washington State all the way down to Southern California to Rhode Island, down to uh, Norfolk, Virginia, which is a very large Navy facility there in Virginia. I ended up going to the University of Virginia and uh, received a, a bachelor's in geology and then went on for a Ph.D. and, and received that in marine science. Okay. And, and what part of marine science? I mean, because... I'm uh, more on the geological oh, end okay. of uh, marine science, the uh, physical aspects of it. And, and, and what I've grown to specialize in is uh, how, the, how our coastlines change, uh, you know, uh, Commonly, you hear, you know, when a hurricane's coming ashore, you hear about how high the wind speeds are and how deep the storm surge might become. What you hear less about is that during these storms, the the land is moving and changing, changing shape and elevation, and and that's particularly what uh, my group with the USGS focuses on. Okay. And by the way, folks, the reason I got in touch with, with Abby is his sister, who traveled around growing up all over the country, lives here in Columbia and um, listens to the journal. And she sent me a, a nice note saying she had a, a brother who had written a book and thought I might be interested. Well, I, I get a lot of those. But she said, it deals with hurricanes. So I said, you know, South kind of might be interested in that. And I emailed Abby and asked for a copy of his book, and it's called Island in a Storm, and the subtext I think is really interesting. A rising sea, a vanishing coast, and a 19th century disaster that warns of a warmer world. It deals with a barrier island in the Gulf off the coast of Louisiana. So was the, the topic of this book, was the subject something that you came across as a part of your work, or had you learned about Ile Denier before uh, it, it, I, I first came across it uh, when a colleague of mine in, in Louisiana, a coastal geologist, uh, took me out to Ile de Nier, uh, and, and I visited it for the first time. This was uh, back in the uh, mid-1980s. And, and at that time, that island was eroding uh, faster or as fast as, as any other barrier island in, in the world. Uh, on average, about 20 meters, 60 feet or, or more per year. Is, is that lengthwise or is that the, the side that's facing the Gulf? The, the side that's facing the Gulf, and it's, and it's the yearly retreat landward. So uh, let's say if you had a oceanfront or a Gulf front home there, uh, the water would be coming at you uh, on average 60 feet per year. So the you know, even a wide beach would <laughs> would disappear so, so, but very not, rapidly. There are not any homes there now, are there? There's there are no homes there now. It has a uh, what what first was intriguing about the island for me was were just the physical characteristics and its physical history, how it's changed uh, over the past 150 years, a a, a period during which we have. Uh, Good records, good maps to to compare and, and to see how it's changed. Right, let, uh, that's what I focused on at at that time. Okay, uh, before we get into talking about your book and the hurricane, let's talk about Barrier Islands for a minute. 
Um, of course, in South Carolina, you know, and a lot of our listeners know, we've, we've got two two kinds of barrier islands. We've got those that are um, that once were part of the mainland that are there, and then we've got those the shifting sand islands further out, whether you're talking about Pauley's or uh, Dewey's or Hilton Head or, or the like, was Ile Denier like, w- was, it was one of those islands that was built up out of a sandbar or what have you, as opposed to being originally part of the mainland. Is that right? The, it, it turns out that Ile Denier was at one time in all of the barrier islands in Louisiana, were, were part of the mainland at one time. Oh, okay. Uh, they were actually the outer edge of what they call a delta lobe uh, associated with the Mississippi Delta. Mm-hmm. And they started out as a, as a mainland beach, sandy beach, mm-hmm. uh, and then evolved into a standalone barrier island. Well, would the same thing apply to Ship Island off the Mississippi Gulf Coast and Dolphin Island off the Alabama Gulf Coast? Actually, those are, are different. It, it's interesting. Um, you know, everywhere you go along the coast, there's a, a bit of a different physical story on on why the the islands are there. It's odd that uh, you know that, that that they look very similar today, whether it's uh, Sullivan's or Isle of Palms or Dauphin Island and it's Ship Island or or Eildenir for that matter. Uh, they look the same physically. But they all have a, a different origins, and, and some are better understood. The origins are better understood than, than others. Some uh, originally start from a headland, uh, like like up at uh, Cape Romaine, and and a, a headland that at one time was uh, projecting into the sea, and and then eroded back. Uh, uh, over time, and it concentrated sand uh, along the shores. It, this is essentially what happened in Louisiana. Uh, and spits would form these elongated, growing laterally. Uh, uh, sand features would would grow from the uh, this this area that that stuck out into the sea, and and over time. Uh, they, they would be isolated for different reasons and, and become standalone. Uh, it, exactly how each one of the barrier islands uh, along the U.S. shores formed is, a, it, is an interesting and still a research uh, uh, question. I, I think those in Louisiana are probably best known for uh, compared to any other place. This is Walter Edgar's Journal. Today's program is a rebroadcast of a 2009 interview with geologist and author Abby Salinger and is part of our continuing series celebrating Walter Edgar's Journal at 21. Let's, let's talk now about Ile Denier um, and the hurricane. And, and when books come in, I have a stack there by my desk. My wife was looking for something to read. She picked it up. And uh, this is one of those things where she stayed up till about two o'clock in the morning reading. She said, "I can't put it down." She said, "This this reads like a, a the, the best page turner, whether whether you're dealing with uh, detective fiction of Robert B. Parker or whether you're dealing with Clive Cussler." She said, "This is an incredible, incredible story. You're going to love it." Well, she was absolutely right. I didn't stay up till two o'clock. I started and read it earlier in the morning. Um, but it really is a fascinating tale. I don't want to say a beautiful tale because it's a very tragic tale. You may have traveled all over the United States, but somewhere along the line, whether it was in Norfolk or having gone to UVA, you certainly picked up the Southern knack for storytelling. <laughs> well, you know, I've, uh, you know, I, I started taking, uh, uh, you know, just as an aside, as a a hobby, if you will, uh, fiction writing courses, if you will, about 10 years ago. And, you know, just to give a very different, as you know, Walter, we we spend, as scientists and, and research people, we spend uh, most of our time writing in academic kinds of journals, which is a, a very, very different kind of writing, it, writing than, than you see in, a, in the popular literature. It's, and, very, it's very jargon-esque, <laughs> to be nice about it. Um, but one of the things that I, I found, you, you are a scientist, and yet I always check people's footnotes in their bibliography. You, you've dealt with poets. You've dealt with the best fiction writers of 
19th century Louisiana, whether it's Lafcadie or Hearn or, um, or some of the other folks. You've, you've gone to the, to the newspapers. You've gone to diaries. You've gone to memoirs. I mean, this is the—you you did a, what a historian would do. Well, I, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, I, once I, I started digging into it, it, it just became uh, fascinating to me. You know, like I said, my first introduction to the Ile de Nier was uh, uh, the, the physical processes and, and the history of the, uh, of, of the environment itself. What I've been exploring for the last two or three years, uh, you know, on my own time, it is the culture and the beautiful writing from from the 19th century that, that that's just really engaging and trying to pull that together in and still be faithful to a to a true story that uh, and, and try to tell it in a way that's engaging has has been a tremendous amount of fun for me. Well, it is an engaging story. Now, you you said this island is disappearing at the rate of. Uh, 20 meters is roughly 60 feet a year. Correct. Is it on the verge of disappearing? It, uh, a group of uh, scientists uh, that, that I was a part of uh, about in the early 90s uh, predicted that the island would vanish by 2015. Mm-hmm. And, and that was an, an extrapolation of what it has done in terms of per year area decrease. Uh, over the past 150 years, that 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 would be when it just went to zero. And uh, what has happened is the the barrier islands in Louisiana are appreciated in different ways than they are in South Carolina, for instance, and and elsewhere along the Atlantic coast and the Gulf Coast. And and primarily, is they they look at the islands as their first line of defense against storms, knocking down the waves. Uh, just like a seawall or something, and uh, perhaps uh, impacting, limiting to some degree uh, storm surge, although that's that, that's controversial in the technical community. And, and so those islands were actually restored. They were not allowed to vanish. Mm-hmm. And so not all of them, but, but the Ile de Nier is no longer a continuous island, but and it's been chopped up quite a bit naturally. But it has been uh, restored from sediments dredged elsewhere and dumped on the island. Not not in the classic beach nourishment sense of finding, you know, just the nicest sand you can find out there to put on the beach so people can enjoy, you know, going to the beach and laying out and, and stuff like that. This was simply to keep the landform present. No one lives out there. It's just there, and it's and it's justified from a protection point of view, and also for maintaining the estuary, the fabulously fertile estuary that that lies immediately uh, landward. Well, isn't isn't that estuary retreating as well? Absolutely, the, the wetlands there in Louisiana are disappearing at at an extraordinary rate. I've I've had you know just the privilege and, and opportunity to to visit many different coastal areas in the world and to work on how the coast changes during big storms and under normal conditions from Alaska to the South Pacific and all around the uh, the continental UL, U.S. and in Hawaii and this is the only place uh, where I know where you can see it change you. To get to Ildenir, you follow the roads <laughs> south from from New Orleans in, until the road ends, mm-hmm. and then you get on a small boat and you take it for another hour and a half, uh, twisting and winding through marsh channels. Uh, except, you know, month after month, year after year, when you come back, those marsh channels change. They they become wider. You see new ponds showing up to either side. The Ponds coalesce into lakes, and and it's happening so fast that, that that you can see it from trip to trip to the coast. Well, di- didn't you say that this this phenomenon was really sort of first uh, noted in the 19th century when they started digging the industrial canal in New Orleans? I think that was another aspect that that uh, surprised me digging into the literature 
uh, not the technical literature, but uh, but like Hearn's writings and a Creole fellow called uh, George Washington Cable. And yes. in the mid-19th century, they, they talked about the land changing, about the Gulf consuming the land. And it has been going on for a very long time. That's interesting that, that the first best accounts didn't come from scientists, but they came from everyday people who, in those days, we called them local color writers, but uh, fiction writers who, who chronicled this, who, just, who, who observed it. You know, Hearn uh, wrote some beautiful uh, descriptions, and they're, they're quoted in, in some of the early chapters in the book, right, right at the uh, uh, epigraphs, right in the front of the, the, the chapter, and just beautiful, eloquent descriptions of the coast changing and, and being consumed by the sea, that those were his words. And well, well I, I'm, I'm going to read one right now. It's the epigraph you've got for um, the prologue. Right. And it's from Lovecadio's Hearn, his work, Cheetah, A Memory of Last Island. On the gulf side of these islands, you may observe that the trees, where there are any trees, all bend away from the sea. And even of bright, hot days when the wind sleeps, there's something grotesquely pathetic in their look of agonized terror. A group of oaks, I remember, is especially suggestive. Five stooping silhouettes in line against the horizon, like fleeing women with streaming garments and wind-blown hair, bowing grievously and thrusting out arms desperately northward as to save themselves from falling. And they're being pursued, indeed, for the sea is devouring the land. Now that's... I like your use of epigraphs. I just... Uh, I couldn't believe a scientist actually wrote this book. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, seriously. I mean, it's just... Not only reads well, but just the way you the way you laid it out, and your your use of primary materials, particularly personal accounts dealing with the the storm, and you actually unmade a couple of people who were initially called heroes. You kind of helped set the record right that they weren't really heroes. You know, I think. Uh, in part, Walter, it's uh, you know you you immerse yourself uh, into the physical sciences uh, for for so long, and and so you know in my career we we, we didn't really focus on the cultural or or or, or the human aspects of uh, of living along coasts, and it, and once I started digging into this, I think it just opened up. Uh, uh, you know some some other interests uh, to, to follow up on what you just said about people acting differently than than the cliche might describe them. Like uh, one of the characters is you know just really hard driving, hard working, uh, very successful, and, and he was indeed all of those things. Uh, but then during the storm, you know he, he he was faced with some very rapid choices that people are only faced with under under dire circumstances and. And his response was very different than the cliche would would suggest. I, I found that fascinating. Well, I found it fascinating that uh, a man lost his family, including young children, but yet he somehow survived. Right. Uh, and there's a story of his letting go his little daughter, was it? That's right. He talked matter-of-factly. Uh, in his account, he, he uh, wrote a... Uh, 60, 70 uh, page document uh, outlining what happened. And evidently, he wrote this be because his wife's uh, family were, were questioning him exactly along the lines that, that you just brought up. And, you know, uh, we, we lost all of our grandchildren, all seven of them, and, and our daughter. What in the world happened? And so this was his writing that document, which which was a, Trevor, a treasure trove for me of, of the details of, of what happened. And, and very matter-of-factly, he, he, he talked of when they were finally, when the island inundated, their house was destroyed. Um, he was thrown into the water with his family, and his little girl threw her arms around his neck. And she was drowning him and and he just matter-of-factly said I threw her off and came up to the surface and swam away and and, and it was so 
matter of fact, you know, in the very 19th century kind of uh, way, you, you, you read a lot of personal accounts, uh, just regular people writing uh, in diaries and, and stuff. And, you know, I had to read that three times to really grasp it because it just, uh, it just seems so it's, it's, it's different. Yeah, it's, well, it's, it's, it's horrible. You know, in, in essence, what he was writing was an apology or a defense. He was defending what he had to do. That's right. Yeah. Um, Abby, I'm looking at uh, the illustration just before your epilogue where you have talk about the forest and the sea. Right. And you've got the map, the coastal map of Ile Dernier in 1853, and you've got the 1978 map. And there was a very long island uh, and sheltered bays behind it. Today, looks like five little bitty islands and what were small bays have now become basic they call them lakes but they're almost open sea that's right the uh, the the evolution of of the landscape uh it, it's amazing in in that part of the world and what you're looking at here in this map from 1853 compared to 1978 are are pretty good pretty good depictions of what it looked like at those two different times. And it's striking that the changes, uh, as you said, there's four or five. At, at one time, the island was more or less continuous, 24 miles long. The people went to these beaches. They called them watering places. And, and, and one of their favorite pastimes was the promenade to, to take a horse uh, and and ride along the beach for 24 miles, or or carriage, or or walk for several miles in in groups. But they just would parade up and down the beach, you know, to see and be seen. I guess. And, I mean, uh, this this was a very high end resort. Not only were the individual houses there, but there was a very grand hotel with ballroom and all all of that. But there were plans to make this even into a much bigger resort before the storm came. That's right. Uh, investors uh, had had plans that are, are written up, uh, beautiful uh, drawings, uh, three-dimensional drawings of, of what the final you know, grand hotel would look like. It would be a huge structure, uh, the, the largest, they said, coastal resort in the, in the United States at that time. And they were going to start construction at the end of the summer. And of, and of course, after the, the storm of 1856, the island was never inhabited again. That's right. Um, it, it, was a, it has been inhabited, uh, but in the traditional uh, Louisiana kind of way, uh, which is uh, different than, than most folks uh, see in, in other places of the country. And that there were some camps. When I've worked there in the 80s and 90s, uh, uh, there were camps. The Louisiana people called them camps, and and really, there uh, many of these are, are more ramshackle kinds of uh, places. Uh, the folks would go out and just fish from or hunt from and stuff like that. But but nothing like uh, a resort, nothing like uh, Hilton Head or uh, or what you see along the Isle of Palms. Or well, who who owns the islands? Are they? Does anybody have title? Are they state property or? You know, back in the mid-19th century, they were privately owned. That land, as you could see in the compared maps, that land no longer exists. The, the islands have uh, uh, not only diminished in size, but, but they've migrated landward. So the property that these families owned back in the mid-19th century is out in the Gulf now. The state came in with some federal support to rebuild the islands, and, and, and well, they well, are no longer, to, to my knowledge, privately owned. Uh, was they, that after Katrina? or This was actually uh, before Katrina in the late uh, 1990s, uh, early 2000s. This is Walter Edgar's Journal. Today's program is a rebroadcast of a 2009 interview featuring the late Dr. Abby Salinger, former head of the U.S. Geological Survey Center's Storm Impact Research Group. In this episode, Salinger talks about his book, 
island in a storm, a rising sea, a vanishing coast, and a 19th century disaster that warns of a warmer world. Well, one of the things you talk about, and I want people to, to think about your subtitle, you know, a rising sea, a vanishing coast, and a 19th century disaster that warns of a warmer world, is Louisiana something of a special case. People will say, well, hey, look, all the levees on the Mississippi, there's no silt being built up, blah, blah, blah. That's not going to happen anywhere else on coastal islands. There are huge differences in barrier islands uh, around our the, the Gulf Coast and the Atlantic Coast. It, there's no doubt about it. Uh, Louisiana is a special place in a lot of ways. However, if, if, if you break down the processes, fundamentally, these islands, whether they survive or not, are, are dependent a great deal on the amount of sand that's locally available to naturally replenish after a, a big storm like Hugo, for instance, uh, on your coast. Mm-hmm. And also, it's the rate of sea level rise. The world's oceans have been rising uh, since we've been keeping records of them. Uh, you know, but relatively small amounts, about one and a half millimeters per, per year on average. And this is the oceans themselves. Uh, in Louisiana, the sea is rising as much as seven times faster than that. And, and that sounds peculiar, but, but it's because the land is actually sinking. So, you know, ultimately, it's a relative thing. As, as the sea rises, it's rising relative to the land. Whether the sea is actually coming up or whether the land is actually sinking, the result is the same. I had a colleague who lived in Louisiana, came to South Carolina, and used to talk about having to have dirt or something pumped in under his house about every four or five years because of the subsiding of the soil. That was in downtown New Orleans. Right. Uh, New Orleans has a tremendous subsidence problem and desiccation problem where where the, the, the sediments become dried out with time and, and they actually uh, sink uh, in a larger scale. It's the sediments coming down the river and dumping into a delta. And just through the weight of the sediment itself, it, it compresses. And, and that's what we're looking at. That's what your friend experienced. And that's what we're seeing along the coast yeah. there. Is land subsiding along the Carolina coast in any way? I mean, we're- You know, um, it, it's far more stable, uh, not completely stable. It turns out our, our, our coastal lands around the country, and, you know, in some places they're actually rising, in other places they're sinking. Uh, some of the largest sinking rates, if you will, though, are, are, are in Louisiana. So whatever's happening along the Carolinas uh, is, is far less than what's happening in, in Louisiana. So the kinds of impacts that we see on the barrier islands in Louisiana to, to translate uh, along the eastern seaboard uh, would require the kinds of rates of sea level rise being predicted in a warmer world, uh, you know, 100 years from now. And, you know, uh, beyond 100 years, it's, it's real difficult to extrapolate. You know, people, you know, even, even at the 100-year time frame, it, it, it's difficult and, and there are a fair amount of uncertainties. But, but I think researchers are really starting to focus in on, on what our situation may be in, uh, you know, over the next century, century and a half. Well, if things are unstable geologically in certain parts, should we keep rebuilding or do we have, should we take a, a hint from Mother Nature and relocate? I tell you what, I, I think uh, the, the greatest lesson, and perhaps the simplest one, uh, there's some wonderful uh, quotes in the epilogue of the book uh, from some of the survivors along that island. One fellow said, you know, it's like it, the first time it occurred to him that uh, no one had any real reason <laughs> to, to be living on, on that island before it got wiped out and killed all, about half of the people. You know, that, 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 that's an interesting realization. Uh, it's not like you, you went out there to, to grow stuff to feed your family or, or even for jobs. This was just a resort. 
And the other thing, though, that I think is perhaps the most interesting is their decision, the survivors' decision in the 1850s, for goodness sake. They said, this place is too hazardous. It's too low. This is going to happen again. You know, we can't expend our personal finances and risk our children's lives uh, to reestablish here. And when we see what's happening today along some of our coasts, particularly repetitive losses, uh, one excellent place is called Dauphin Island, Alabama, uh, which is off the mouth of uh, Mobile Bay. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I grew up in Mobile, so I know Dauphin Island well, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking at what you're, you're saying. Um, I knew during Frederick that most of the homes on the island, particularly those on the, the western end, Hurricane Frederick wiped it out, rebuilt Hurricane Elena in 1985, which wasn't that big a storm, took them out, the houses out again, George's in 98, Katrina in 2005. So within a 24-year period, which is a gen- historic generation, less than a historic generation, that's been rebuilt four times. That's right. And I know from reading the local paper from time to time online is there's real discussion as to, you know, what is the wisdom of going back there? But then you got the folks who say, I got a piece of sand, you know, 60 feet on the beach, and that's mine. You know, it's a difficult personal kind of uh, situation. You know, you can, you know, feel for the people like immediately after a storm and, you know, all of their uh, personal belongings in their house that they perhaps had put a great deal of money and they'd effort uh, and their personal things are there and, and it's just gone. Uh, that's the kind of thing that happened in Dauphin. Uh, that's the kind of thing that happened outside of Galveston during Hurricane Ike. Nothing left. I mean, it, it, it's devastating for, for the people. If you step back, though, and, and, and you observe that, you know, instead of doing what the folks did after the 1856 storm, the routine is usually to go in and not just rebuild the same houses, but to rebuild them bigger, uh, better. And, and commonly, it's federally subsidized property insurance that makes this possible. And, and it's like it's fueling the next disaster. You're, you're just setting it up. Uh, I, I think the repetitive loss issue is, uh, you know, we, we can learn a lot from, from history on that one. I thought there was something with the federal flood insurance. For example, when Hugo took out the first stories of of homes at Garden City, they were allowed to rebuild. But as far as I, I know, most people were told if it goes out, if they go out again, you can't rebuild that first floor. Is that not right? Or that's absolutely right. Now that program does require designing. Let, let's say it's an older structure, like I live in the Tampa Bay area, of Florida. And in this area hasn't been hit since hit hard since the 1920s, and and we have a lot of older ground level structures right along our barrier islands that that when not if it's when we are hit they're going to have a very very difficult time, and so the, the federal flood insurance program does require building it to standards of the day, building them better. Uh, again, stepping back, though, there are some areas along our coastline, though, that are extremely vulnerable to not only the strong winds and storm surge, but to the land moving, the shoreline retreating. And that is classically the situation on Dauphin Island. That I should say that it is not the entire island. The east end of Dauphin Island is relatively high and and weathers these storms much, much better. Huge dunes on the east end of the island. That's right. It, it's the west end that is the issue. In designing structures uh, to survive an island migrating out from underneath them is, is a different matter entirely. And things like uh, stone jetties and groins don't really help, do they? They, they can cause as much difficulty is help. I, I think it's fair to say there is no solution 
it's a very rapid coastal erosion, uh, particularly in these places. A lot of these places where where we see repetitive losses, uh, there are maintenance efforts that can mitigate the problem somewhat, and, and that's used in, in different places around the country where you you mine sand elsewhere and you you build a beach back. So if Dauphin Island migrates back uh, and leaves the the remains of the first or the Gulf front row of houses in the Gulf, which is exactly what happened during Hurricane Katrina. The pilings were just there in the surf. Mm-hmm. And so you build the island back. You find sand someplace else. Perhaps you take it from the landward edge of the, of the island. And, and so during a storm, the island migrates landward, and perhaps you mechanically move it back. Doing this in, in an environment of increasing sea level rise, though, will become increasingly difficult. This maintenance will is going to become hard to uh, to keep up with, and there are major questions whether it's uh, sustainable on large areas of our coastlines in the future. Well, you know, a good northeaster can undo the renourishment of a beach in. 24 hours. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I guess what, since we've been talking about history and other accounts, it's amazing that in the 21st century, human beings have not understood what King Canute understood back in the Middle Ages, and that is you can't stop, man cannot stop the tides. There you go. <laughs> uh, you know, he, he, he was smart enough. We, we, we still seem to think that we can control what's out there, and it's just not going to work. You can, You can go to Garden City Beach, South Carolina today, and at really low tides after a northeaster, you will find the, the, the remains of structures that were there before uh, the storm in the, in the 1950s. Absolutely. At Eddingsville Beach on Edisto Island, the great storm of 1893, again at low tides, you'll find the bricks, the remains of the homes that were, were wiped out in 1893. So those islands have retreated you know, the sea has, has moved in. Um, in the case of uh, Garden City and other places like that, that's within living memory of anybody who's been along the coast for a while. It's, it's not something that happened a long time ago. Right. This is Walter Edgar's Journal. Today's program is a rebroadcast of a 2009 interview with geologist and author Abby Salinger and is part of our continuing series celebrating Walter Edgar's Journal at 21. So let, let's get back to your, your book. We, we have digressed, as one of my colleagues would say, but I, I wanted people to understand that what we're talking about isn't just about Louisiana. It applies here along the Atlantic coast as well. Our islands have changed. You mentioned the coastal survey. Uh, you, can, you can look at some of the islands on our coast, and again, the 19th century maps versus the maps today, and the shape of those islands are quite different. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Now, island in a storm. How about briefly set the scene and walk us through what happened in 1856 on Ile d'Anier? One thing that uh, fascinated me about the storm of the mid-19th century is what brought people to the coast. The cities and the towns of, of Louisiana and, and in much of the south uh, were considered, as well as the north, uh, were, were considered disease-ridden. Uh, yellow fever was, was a very scary disease at the time that, that would just come up in, uh, in, in during the summer of 1853, killed thousands of people in, in New Orleans. And so the people with the means, the, the finances to, to leave town and to go to safer locales like uh, the Ile de Nier did so. And, and, and so this was really a... Uh, a resort for the wealthy, the plantation owners, the rich merchants in New Orleans. Leading politicians. Absolutely. Absolutely. Some of the most prominent people of Louisiana were, were in Ile Nier for the summer of 1856. And the story uh, focuses on a, on a young woman, uh, Emma Meal, and her family from, from a small town called Plaquemine. Louisiana, very near Baton Rouge, only 10 miles from Baton Rouge, and how uh, they took a, a steamboat through the through the delta, and and they arrived on 
went Ildenir for a, a summer of relaxation and good health. And then on August 10th, a great storm came. And the, the storm was sufficient. It would be a Category 4 under today's uh, Saffir-Simpson scale. This, the island only rose up about five to six feet above the Gulf, extremely low. And, and the storm surge was probably at least twice that amount. It, it, so the island went completely underwater. So we're not talking about what a geologist, coastal geologist, oceanographer would call overwash, where the waves are just lapping over the top of an island. The whole thing went underwater. It became like a, a shoal. And it destroyed every building there. Uh, legend has it in Louisiana that during a ball the, the night before, uh, the wind kept increasing and, and stuff. And, and the story's been passed to, along, and, and Hearn wrote a uh, really wonderful novel uh, about the legend of, of Il Denier. And he had, you know, the ballroom being torn apart during the storm and the people died dancing and the first person accounts though had this great ball and the wind was picking up and people were getting nervous uh but but the storm didn't hit for another uh, 18 hours or so now some people did leave the island though didn't didn't they, they did uh and, and that was earlier that day Steamboat decided to make a run to the mainland to take some passengers who, who wanted to get back to the mainland. And, and they made it, and they turned around and actually made it all the way back, and right in the midst of the storm. And it turns out that that steamboat grounded itself on the island. If it had not returned, 200 people survived the storm. They survived because they went into the hull of that steamboat. And... It just hunkered down for uh, for many hours as the storm raged outside. Well, you mentioned the hull because the superstructure was completely blown away. That's right. That's right. It, it didn't even look like a steamboat anymore when uh, when they went ashore. Uh, it was just a, 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 a refuge. Uh, otherwise, the vast majority of people on that island would have died. Well, one of the one of the things I found. Interesting in looking at, at your account of the storm and the sources that you uh, cited is that this 1856 storm became very much a part of the lore of Louisiana. In other words, it became a part of the consciousness of all sorts of folks. That's right. Very much like the 1893 storm that that decimated the low country of South Carolina became a part of it was it was, it was a benchmark. Everybody talked about it. The stories, who survived, who didn't, why they did, why they didn't, uh, are things you can you can still find accounts. Of course, you get things like the gray man at Pauley's issuing the warning and people not heeding it and all that kind of thing. It's it, it's a parallel. I'm sure Louisiana certainly had bad storms since uh, this unnamed storm of 1856, but this became very much a part of the the, the consciousness of individuals as well as the general public. There's no, no question about it. In, in Hearn's novel uh, called Cheetah, Memory of Last Island, Yildenir uh, means Last Island in uh, French, and he really popularized the, the story in, in Louisiana. And there was, in, in his novel is about a young Creole woman, a girl actually at the time. And, and people thought, have thought since that time that uh, the woman I mentioned earlier, Emma Meal, who was uh, 18 years old when she was on the island, it was Hearn's model, if you will, to in this novel. Uh, and, and Hearn had her rescued by fishermen uh, from another island, and no one could find her parents and, and just raised her from from there. And, and, and it's fascinating, though, that the it didn't happen like that. But... Emma Meal, uh, her, her real story is, is just about as interesting. She was severely injured. She was swept offshore and hung on to floating debris through the storm and, and just through the, uh, the magic, if you will, of the counterclockwise swirl of, of the hurricane winds. It, uh, it, it at first blew her offshore and then turned around and blew her back to the beach 
where she was uh, picked up and, and actually nursed back to health by a, a young doctor. Who, who and she, she later married him. About four months after the storm in December, she lost her entire family on the island except for two sisters who, who had not make the, made the trip. But she lost her parents and her brother and her sister-in-law. And, and she married this young doctor, that's right, four months after, uh, after the storm. And, and just a, a wonderful story. She, she ended up living well into her 90s, and she had, you know, grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And just a fascinating story. And, and actually her survival, given what women were wearing in those days, is that's an incredible story in itself, that she was able to hang on to wreckage and survive. Absolutely. She, she had to have endured the surf, uh, the, the Gulf surf. Some of the people were swept from the island landward and, and were driven back across a bay well back for miles in, into the marsh. Uh, some of those people survived. Many, many didn't. Uh, but Emma was, uh, was swept at first offshore through the Gulf, and, and again through this complex movement of the, the winds, and, and then returned to the beach. Uh, but, but she had to have uh, hung on to these, the, the floating debris and, and stuff in, in, in waves that, that could have been 10, 15, 15 breakers, 10, 15 feet higher. Hmm. Well, Abby, we're about to run out of time. Have you got any words of advice for those of us who love the, the coast, whether it's the Gulf Coast where I grew up or the Atlantic Coast where I spend a great deal of time now down on Edisto Island? What's, what's the future hold for us? You know, um, Walter, I love living and, and visiting the coast like, like, like everyone else. And uh, it turns out my sister and I uh, enjoyed a home that my father built, the only home that, that we actually had through our childhood uh, since the family moved all over the country as a, as a Navy family. It was in southern shores of Kitty Hawk of, of North Carolina, on, on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. I, I think I learned something from that experience that has stuck with me, even though I now travel to places that are eroding extremely rapidly and, and stuff like that. My father built his house on a, on a sand dune that was 20 meters, 60 feet high, uh, well back from, from the ocean. For those who remember the Ash Wednesday storm I was a child in that hit in the early 60s uh, along the eastern seaboard and, and had great destruction from Long Island well down into North Carolina, including South Carolina. And, and our house was untouched, but our neighbor's houses right along the ocean front were filled with sand all the way to the roof. The, the sand dunes were driven back into the houses. What, what, what I'm getting at here is that I, I am not one to say, don't live on a coast. Don't, don't ever live on a, on a barrier island. I'd, I'd be the last one to say that. But I do say that there are some places along our barrier island coastlines on the Atlantic and Gulf Coast that are far safer, more stable than other locations. The west end of Dauphin Island being one that's extraordinarily hazardous. The Bolivar Peninsula immediately to the north of Galveston that had communities that were 100% wiped out during Hurricane Ike is another example, extraordinarily low location. So if, if there's a message, it's that know your coast, know the hazards there, and, and realize that there are some places along our coast that, that would, are very difficult to really maintain and sustain into the future. Okay. All right. Abby Salinger with the U.S. Coastal Geological Survey Center for the Storm Impact Research Group and the author of a wonderful new book, Island in a Storm. I want to thank you for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you, Walter. I enjoyed it.
This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. It really was not just interesting for me, but fun to talk with Abby about history, fiction, literature, geology, all wrapped up in this story about Ile Dernier, the last island off the coast of Louisiana, but strong implications for those of us who live on the Atlantic coast and who enjoy it, whether it's Pauley's Garden City, Sullivan's, Isle of Palms, or my second home where I've got put down lots of roots in the last two years on Edisto. They're historical examples for all of us. Fortunately, our coastal islands are not in the same shape as those off the coast of Louisiana. But there are places, as Dr. Salinger mentions, where human beings really shouldn't build their homes. There are certain places, like Dolphin Island, Alabama, the West End, the homes have been destroyed four times in less than 25 years. Now, common sense would say, probably shouldn't want to go back there. His book, I recommend it to you. Number one, it's just a fabulous read. It was a page turner. And that book is Island in a Storm by Abby Salinger. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Today's program was a rebroadcast of a 2009 interview with geologist and author Abby Salinger and is part of our continuing series celebrating Walter Edgar's Journal at 21. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.